0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 22. As our children are dismissed, ages 3 through 5 for junior church, find in your Bible Psalm 22. We're continuing a series that we call Summer in the Psalms. Before we get started today in Psalm 22, uh, I rarely win anything. You know, like, you ever done those things where you put your name in a hat or retweet this? Well, I retweeted that, and by my surprise, Crossway sent me Uh, men's study Bible, and a Psalter, which is the Psalms, and I want to give them to you, some of you. Here's the challenge. Uh, I want the first man that can memorize Psalm 1 that has not previously memorized it, okay? So on the honor code, if you've not memorized Psalm chapter 1, recite it to me, and I will give you this men's study Bible, okay? And since the men have a challenge, okay, uh, everyone else. So ladies, Young women, young men, uh, well, a young man could get this too. Uh, And children, if you have not previously memorized Psalm 23, okay? So I know a lot of people have, but if you have not previously memorized Psalm 23, and you come recite it to me, this beautiful uh, Psalter is yours. Uh, In it are pictures from Ireland, okay? So it's um, it's non-versified. In other words, they don't have verse numbers. It's just the whole text of the Psalm with beautiful imagery, uh, beside it. And I want to give that to you if you memorize Psalm 23. And then, I don't have them in front of me because I'm going to get them all from the book nook. If you have not previously memorized Psalm 22, all right, that's our psalm for today, and it's 31 verses long. I will uh, go to the book nook with you, and we'll get the CSB study Bible and two other books of your, cho- your choosing. Alright, so because it's a longer psalm, I may not have foyer time. You know, for you to stand there and recite a five-minute psalm to me by memory. So my my challenge, the way you would do this is you would have a, a friend, a family member, video you. Uh, reciting it, and they could like turn the camera and be like, yeah, he actually did that, or she actually did that, and then email it to me or show it to me another time when it's more, uh, more free time and not right after church or something like that. The shorter psalms, Psalms 1 and 23, certainly catch me in the foyer, and I will uh, make sure to make, make those yours, okay? So that's the challenge, uh, memorizing scripture. It's a wonderful thing for us to do as we meditate on God's word, and I'm going to speak a little bit more to that challenge in the message. All right, Hopefully by now you've had time to find Psalm 22, and I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. all the prosperous of the earth, eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. And you may be seated. The Lord is my shepherd. No, I'm not confused. I know we're not on Psalm 23, we're on Psalm 22. I did not misspeak. The Lord is my shepherd. And as Jesus said in John's gospel, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As I introduce Psalm 22 this morning, consider with me the placement of this amazing psalm. Of course, you may have guessed that I'm hinting at how Psalm 22 is the perfect precursor to Psalm 23. But before we look ahead to how this psalm fits Psalm 23, we must remember that 23 is followed by, excuse me, 22 is followed by 21, and 21, of course, by 20. So if you were here last week and last August, as we've been studying the Psalms together, you will remember that in Psalm 20 and 21, there is a sense of certainty that the sovereign God will answer and help the king who lives by his trust in God and not in vast armies. His trust is not in horses and chariots, but in the name of the Lord, his God. Of course, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we learned that if Psalm 20 prophesied about Christ in his trouble, Psalm 21 prophesied about Christ in his victory. We've seen that in Psalm 20, the people of God prayed that Yahweh would deliver the king. And in the very next Psalm, thanksgiving was given to God for answering the cry of the king and delivering him and saving him. So then if you follow Psalm 20 and 21, where there is a seeming sense of certain victory, whenever the king cries, you answer him, you hear him. There is a sharp and stark contrast with the beginning of Psalm 22. Because at least at the very beginning of Psalm 22, there is no help. There is no answer for the Lord's anointed one, at least not initially. For majority of the psalm, the psalmist is in lament because he is suffering deep physical And torturous anguish emotionally as well as a result of the onslaught of fierce enemies and a seeming lack of support from his God. But it's the kind of physical suffering and anguish that if we're honest with ourselves far exceeds anything David could have faced. It only finds its fulfillment and fullness when we consider our Lord Jesus Christ, which we will do today. For that reason, James Boyce's commentary calls Psalm 22 the song of the dying shepherd who was crying out to the Father from the cross. If Psalm 22 is the Psalm of the cross and the dying shepherd, Psalm 23 is the song of the risen shepherd, guiding the sheep through life's dark wilderness. And then he sees Psalm 24 as the song of the ascended shepherd who will reward those who serve him faithfully. And so what Boyce sees in the sequence of three Psalms, 22, 3, and 4, is a prophecy of sorts of the three various ways that Jesus in the New Testament is called our shepherd. That he lays down his life, that he guides us, and that he is the chief shepherd who rewards under shepherds. While that's a fascinating consideration, we must turn now to Psalm 22 proper, and consider this psalm in and of itself, which we've already seen is a prophecy that finds its fulfillment in the cross of Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross. We know there were times in King David's life when he could have spoken of being surrounded by enemies, feeling utterly forsaken by God. Like, for example, when Saul and his armies were hunting him down, or when Absalom usurped his father's throne. But the agonies David faced could only be said to be recorded here as poetic and hyperbolic. Because while David faced anguish in his soul, he never suffered the kind of physical torture and even death described in Psalm 22. So, what should we make of this? Well, let's not forget that at Pentecost, while Peter was preaching, he made it very clear that David was a prophet who spoke of things and foresaw things like the resurrection of the Messiah. And here, we must conclude that by the Holy Spirit, David was prophesying things that could only find their total fulfillment in the suffering and the death of Jesus on Calvary. But it isn't just Jesus' death that is foreseen in this psalm. There are glimpses of resurrection gospel proclamation, and the ingathering of Gentile nations that are also prophesied in this exquisite psalm. This psalm 22 has grown to become one of, if not my favorite psalm. There is a certain poignancy to the description of our Lord's suffering and vindication. Years ago, I committed this psalm to memory. It was in the NIV 84, hence a couple of the slip-ups this morning as I'm reading from the ESV. But I will often meditate on this psalm during the Lord's Supper to help me remember Christ's suffering and agony on Calvary for us. Excuse me. That's one reason why I challenged us today with the challenge of memorization. So you could meditate on this psalm during communion as well. But I want to give you another reason to memorize Psalm 22. It's because Jesus did too. Jesus did too. And he was meditating on this psalm while he was on the cross. I am convinced of that to my core that as he bled and died on Calvary, this psalm in its entirety was on his mind. From his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually calling attention to the whole psalm from verse 1 to 31, including the sense of certain victory that is encompassed in it. That was a common way for rabbis <clears throat> to call to remembrance a passage of scripture. They wanted their students to continue to recite or to meditate upon is to give them the first line. It's why in our hymnals, oftentimes in the index, there's an a index of songs by first line. Because if I just said, I heard an old, old story, how a savior came from glory, you could keep singing that song because you've sung it so many times from memory. But if I put you on the spot and said, sing victory in Jesus, you might be able to do the chorus, but you might have trouble getting started with the first line. But once you've got the first line, muscle memory begins to take over and do the rest. And when we observe, as we will in a few moments, all of the numerous ways that all of this psalm was actually playing out right before Jesus' eyes on the cross. It seems more likely that he wanted his followers to look and see all of the psalm when he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. You see, not only did he say the first line, but brothers and sisters, he also uttered the last line with his dying breath. According to many scholars, the original Hebrew could be translated in the last verse, it is finished. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon writes about the special nature of this psalm. This is beyond all others the psalm of the cross. <clears throat> it is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the lacrimatory of his last tears, the memorial of of his expiring joys. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see King David. Because before us, we have a description both of the darkness and the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that follows. Oh, for grace, To draw near and see this great sight, we should read reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. Brothers and sisters, please do not content yourself to hearing one sermon today on Psalm 22 and then seeing it once or twice a year as your Bible reading plan calls for it. There aren't enough hours and enough days in our lifetimes to plumb the depths of the beauty, sacredness, and usefulness of Psalm 22. We will only have time in the remainder of this message to consider an overview of the psalm, a look at many of the ways in which Jesus fulfilled it, and then seek to make some application of it. But I pray it serves like an appetizer, teasing your desire to feast more on this psalm for years to come. So now, as we consider the overview, we acknowledge first that this psalm is a psalm of individual lament. There have been some scholars who uh, have, over the years, tried to argue that this psalm is actually two stitched together because there is such a stark contrast between the lament and the praise that begins in verse 22. This is, of course, an unnecessary assertion because all of the lament psalms, except for one, end in praise. And that psalm, just for trivia's sake, is Psalm 88, in case you were wondering. But most of the the lament psalms, every one of them except one in the Psalter, ends in praise. So it's very natural, not surprising, to find praise at the end of lament. And as we'll see this morning, that lament comes in three waves. Each one was combated by faith. David goes back and forth between the I and me, I slash me sections of this lament, to the you sections of the lament. Did you pick up on a little of that as we were reading the psalm the first time? Let's kind of look back through it, if you will. You could put brackets if you are inclined to do so in your Bible in the margins on verses one through two. That's wave one of lament. Verses six through eight, that's wave two of lament. And verses 12 through 18, wave three. All of those are the I and the me. I'm crying out, I'm asking for help. Each of those segments, the lament comes with a wave upon wave of terror and anguish. But he combats those waves with prayer of faith each time. Alternating brackets of his responses are verses 3 through 5, verses 9 through 11, and verses 19 through 21. That's where he combats this lament and the sorrow and anguish he's facing with faith. So let's look at each of these things briefly. David begins in this psalm by crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sidney Grudenus writes, David does not expect an answer to this rhetorical question of why. He doesn't want God to give him reasons why he's forsaken him. He wants action. He wants God to come back and rescue him. You see, David is beginning to think God is too far away to even hear him. That cry of a lion, the roaring, is like a roaring of a lion. The groaning, the the word has the sense of a a roaring lion that should be able to be heard for a long distance. He feels God is very distant from him. But in response, you see what he did? He prayed in faith, verse 3, that acknowledged the holiness of God. And the way that God had rescued his fathers in the past. But when he considers how he had helped them, how God had saved them, he comes back to the present reality that although God helped the fathers, he doesn't seem to be helping him right now, saving him from the scorn and the mockery of present day adversaries. So then in the second wave of lament, he compares himself in verse six to a worm. The kind of thing you step on with your feet that we have so little regard for. His enemies are mocking him and their taunt is especially painful because they contend that his God is disinterested in helping him. That's what hits him to the core. It's like, God doesn't even want to help you. You're so down there. Like you're so beneath me. That's the kind of insult he was receiving. But in verse nine, David prays to the God who has been his God since birth. The God who had a plan for his life from day one really from in the womb, if you read it correctly. And of course, isn't it a beautiful reminder that the personhood of a child begins in the womb? And we should all pause and just thank God for the overturning of Roe and Casey. David turns to a metaphor then in verse 12 of animals to describe the fierceness of the enemies in this third wave of lament. Verse 12, he calls them bulls of Bashan. Now, that's kind of weird because we don't all understand what that means. Let me just explain a little bit. That Bashan is a metaphor for human pride and self-sufficiency. Bashan is located in the present-day Golan Heights, and it's uh, 2,000 feet above sea level, and it receives 24 inches of precipitation in a year. And so it's fertile, and it produces a lot. And so it became to be symbolic for human pride. David also compares them to ravaging lions whose mouths are open wide to devour him at any moment. And then he goes on to speak metaphorically and poetically of his faintness of heart and his nearness to death. That's why he sees dogs surrounding him. This is not your Fido at home. Dogs were scavengers that would eat on dead things in the streets That's why he likely foresees them as nipping at his hands and his feet and puncturing them. And on he goes with his physical frailty and the expected gambling for his garments, a common practice in the Middle Assyrian laws. And so one more time, out of the depth of his anguish, David does not despair beyond the hope of rescue. He turns once more in verse 19 to prayer for the Lord to save him. In verse 19 in your Bibles, underline, if you do, the word LORD in all caps. Because it is for the first time that David calls upon God by his covenant name, Yahweh. And on the basis of covenant promises given to David, he once more begs for deliverance. And it comes. You have rescued me. He says in verse 21, and then the whole psalm shifts gears in verse 22 from lament to an ever expanding praise and glory to God. David's situation has been completely reversed. Whereas God did not answer him before, now God has answered him. Whereas he was surrounded by his enemies, now he is surrounded by brothers and sisters in the congregation. Grudenus writes It seemed at first that God despised David's affliction. But now it is clear that he did not despise his affliction. It seemed at first that God hid his face from David by not answering him. But now it is clear he did not hide his face from David. Instead, he heard when he cried to him. Just as God had heard and saved his ancestors when they cried, like verse 5, God heard and saved David. And King David desired that the circle of praise would widen and grow beyond himself and his family and even the congregation to the ends of the earth in praise for the way God had delivered him. He goes to the temple and offers a sacrifice of praise, and he invites others to partake in a feast with him as he praises God for deliverance. And the background of that is what's called a votive feast. That is to say, a feast... In fulfillment of a vow, Derek Kidner, in his commentary, explains that the law encouraged those who had vowed some sort of service to God, if their uh, prayer was answered, to fulfill their vow with a sacrifice, followed by a feast, like verse 26, which could last as long as two days. Those making this kind of vow offering were not to keep their happiness to themselves, Or their children. They were to invite their servants and poor people and the Levites to come and eat with them before the Lord, and they were to tell, tell the congregation what God had done for them so they could join in in praising God and worshiping Him. So David anticipates an ever widening circle of those who will glorify God and proclaim His righteousness that He had accomplished. This great deliverance. Now, I want us to turn from that very brief overview of the psalm to a consideration of the ways it was fulfilled with our New Testament glasses on. We already know Jesus had this psalm on his mind when he was on the cross. We've established that. The New Testament authors quote this psalm more than any other. There are so many to name we're not going to have time to go through every one of them, although you might think we are, because <laughs> um, the outline, it lists a lot. But I want you to be assured that I'm going to go through these in a rapid fire pace. So if you've been following along and taking notes, I tried to leave short words for fill in the blanks. And if you need to see me afterwards, I will show you my transcripts so you can see what the fill in of the blank you missed was. Are you ready for the way Psalm 22 was fulfilled in Christ? One is obvious. Letter A, it was fulfilled in Christ's cry on the cross. This is what you noticed right away when we started to read Psalm 22 is Matthew 27, verse 46. When the ninth hour came, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally fulfilled on the cross. Letter B, this was fulfilled in Christ's humanity and sin bearing. Being thinking of himself as a worm and not a man, this this kind of despised and rejected sounds a lot like Isaiah fifty-three and the suffering servant, and that's a fun comparison we don't have time for today, too. But compare this psalm with Isaiah and the song of the servant. But Second Corinthians five tells us why he might feel so despised, why he would look to be so ugly, because he was bearing the sins of the world in his humanity. He made him to be sin, we are told, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Furthermore, there's fulfillment in the mockery, letter C, of Christ. The mockery of Christ, verses 7 through 8 of the Psalm are almost literally fulfilled in those who are mocking Jesus at Calvary. Matthew 27, verses 40 through 43. They said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, then just come down from the cross. Isn't that the way that unbelievers often think of our God? Just a genie to come and fill our needs whenever we need it. At our beck and call. As though there is no purpose in suffering. No glory to follow the chief priests, scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, he saves others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe him. Imagine if he had done that. Their mockery was the quote of Psalm 22. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. That was their mock and taunt, literally fulfilled. In your mind's eye, can you see it? All playing out in front of Jesus, letter D, fulfillment in Christ's holy birth. From birth I I was cast upon you, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. David was a servant of God from birth, and so was Christ. In this way, we see Matthew one twenty one says that Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We see fulfillment in Christ's fierce enemies, letter E the strong bulls of Bashan, the roaring lions, the dogs surrounding. Think of Matthew 27, when all the chief priests and elders and the people took counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Think of Psalm 2. They gathered together to be his fierce enemies and put him to death. Letter F, there's fulfillment in Christ's physical anguish and his thirst Verse 14 through 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Of course, David wouldn't have even known about crucifixion. It hadn't been invented, so to speak. And yet we know one of the byproducts of crucifixion is excruciating thirst. And Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, John 19 says, To fulfill scripture, I thirst. What scripture you think was on his mind? Letter G. In Christ pierced hands and feet. Dogs have surrounded me. Verse 16. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Again. Amazingly prophetic as we consider the disciple Thomas that wouldn't believe, he said in John 20:25, 20, "Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe." Of course we know. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. Again, to draw allusion to Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace and by his wounds. We are healed. Letter H, there's fulfillment in the gambling for Christ's garments. Verse 18. I mean, literally fulfilled right in front of Jesus' eyes. Matthew 27, 35 records when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them and cast lots for his clothing. A literal fulfillment of this psalm right there. Letter I in Christ's willingness to call us brothers. This is important. This is important because, again, as New Testament authors write, they help us know how to interpret and understand the Psalms. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, after having stressed Christ's superiority to other created beings, if you're thinking through the beginning of Hebrews with me, in a number of ways, then the author of Hebrews shows Jesus has also become the savior of his people by becoming like them and making them members of his family. And it's at this point that he quotes Psalm 22:22: 22, 22. "He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying." And then what he says, when he calls them brothers, is the quote from Psalm 22:22. 22, 22. "I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise." That's Jesus, according to the author of Hebrews, who said that. So James Boyce, trying to explain, says that this quotation of Psalm 22 in Hebrews tells us how to interpret the psalm. It tells us Jesus, at least the second person in the Trinity, before his incarnation, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the prophetic writing of David, is speaking. Not just in this verse, but throughout It tells us that the brothers and sisters of the psalm in the second half are those for whom Christ died and rose again. Letter J, there's fulfillment in the psalm in Christ's throne room, call to praise. In verse 23, he says, "'You who seek the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel.'" Well, this is fulfilled in Revelation 19.5, when from the throne, John says, came a voice saying, what voice? Jesus' voice, praise our God, all you his servants and you who fear him, a quote from Psalm 22.23. Incidentally, just as a side note, that call to praise, that call to worship is followed by a feast in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. A feast celebrating the fulfillment of a vow, we could say. Letter K. This psalm is fulfilled in the Father's countenance upon the Son, where we read that God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Sometimes people will isolate verse 1 of Psalm 22 and say there must have been some sort of rift in the Godhead. But this psalm, by its conclusion, makes it very clear that however much suffering and distress and anguish the son was under, ultimately, the face of the father was not hidden from him, and his cry was heard. And Hebrews 5, 7 tells us why. Because of Jesus and his reverence. He offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. The psalmist fulfilled letter L in the advance of the gospel among the nations. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, verse 27. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Well, of course, we know this being fulfilled in the missionary endeavor when Jesus tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the end of the earth. All the nations will hear about the work of God rescuing and saving his anointed one. After he died on the cross, he didn't leave him dead. He rescued and rose. He raised him from the grave and that gospel has gone forth to the nation's. This psalm is being fulfilled right now as I'm preaching to you. Letter M, in the certainty of Christ's dominion over the world forever. Verse 28 says, dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. I told uh, Jimbo uh, McPherson that moved away from here. Remember remember James, he was uh, singing on the praise team. His company was called Dominion. This is totally incidental and kind of a Tangent, but I told him every time I recite this psalm, I think of him now. Dominion belongs to the Lord. Don't forget whose company that is, right? Uh, But anyway, he rules over the nations. He rules the world, okay? So this is yet to be consummated in its fullness, the kingdom does belong to Christ. He does rule and reign now, but the Bible says he is subjecting all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy subject is death, and he will come and we will see the kingdom of our Lord become the kingdom of his Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen is all about the full completion of his dominion. The seventh angel blew the trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever letter N, this psalm fulfills in the the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. Verse 29 says, all who go down to the dust will worship him. Well, that is contrary to other psalms that tend to indicate in the Hebrew way of thinking that Sheol was it. Like, you go to the grave, there are some times where it's like, well, that's not really good because you can worship God when you're alive, but if you're dead, you're not really praising him. So keep me alive, God, because I like to praise you and you like my praise. So some psalms will say, you know, what good am I if I'm dead? I can't praise you. But this psalm has the hope of the resurrection built right in. Those who go down to the dust will praise him. Do you see it? So there's the fulfillment in the hope of the resurrection, Where, of course, we understand that as in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There's fulfillment, letter O, in the promise of the ongoing proclamation of God's righteousness. They will proclaim, verse 30 and 31 says, his righteousness to a people yet unborn, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel of God is the good news of his righteousness, his justice in dealing with sin in a way that can save us and bear the wrath that he justly could spend on his Son the righteousness of God being proclaimed to ongoing generations. Well, that's, this is being fulfilled in the church. Matthew 16, 18 says on Peter, on this rock, this confession of who I am, the gospel witness of the Messiah, Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It will go forth. They will proclaim God's righteousness and it will on and on will go. So letter P, we continue in Christ's sixth word on the cross. If you've heard of the seven last words, the sixth word is, it is finished. And of course, as you've heard me say, Charles Spurgeon writes in his Treasury of David that there are scholars who say that in the original Hebrew, the last line that he has done it could also be translated that it is finished And so when Jesus said in John 19 30, it is finished, and he bowed and gave up his spirit, he had not only quoted the first line, but the last, thus bracketing the entire psalm for those who were within his hearing. It's truly worth marveling at the many, many ways this psalm is fulfilled, but It's not that this psalm just helps us gain a richer depth of understanding of the mind of Christ or the events of Calvary. This psalm also has practical things for us today to take away and apply to our lives. So let me share four takeaways with you. Letter A. And by the way, the four are the letters. Okay, so letter A is number one, if you will. Psalm 22 teaches us aspects of faith To remember in the midst of distress and suffering. I know none of you have experienced any distress or suffering recently. That was sarcasm, okay? We all go through distress and suffering. So this psalm is practical and can be applied to you by giving you a toolbox of tools of faith to use in the midst of suffering. Number one, Remember the holiness of God. Instead of questioning the holiness of God in our distress, Psalm 22.3 teaches us the psalmist argued from the holiness of God as a fixed and certain conviction to fight the feelings of distress and anguish he faced. No matter how hard or how dark or difficult it might be, like Job's testimony to us, he would not curse God and die. He recognized God is completely other. He is holy. He is sovereign. And his ways are right and good and true. Number two, remember the prior works of God. Three times, in verses um, 4 and 5, David says and remembers ways that his predecessors trusted God. They trusted they trusted, they trusted, and you rescued, you delivered, you delivered. He had been faithful before, so trust him based on his past faithfulness. So remember his works, which are recounted for us in God's word, and you have your own testimony of those works as well in your own life. Number three, remember the nearness of God. In verse 19 through 21, the psalmist, in his distress, begged for the Lord to be near to him and to come to his aid. But brothers and sisters, we have an even greater promise from our risen Savior that he would never leave us or forsake us. He would be with us, as the Great Commission says, to the end of the age. In Christ, by faith, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be assured of his nearness to us in and through our deep sorrows and anguish. Fourth, remember the hope of the resurrection. Again, reflecting on verse 27 and 29, there's one author that put it like this. He says that even when Jesus was dying on the cross, the light of Easter had already begun to break through. You see why I love this Psalm? The mindset of the Lord If he's thinking this whole psalm, he knows the end. He knows what's going to happen. And so he had the resurrection and the certainty of the resurrection to take him through the suffering of the cross to bring him to glory. And so we too must arm ourselves in our lament and suffering with the hope of the resurrection, which is of course secured by the vindication of Jesus described here in this very psalm. If it were not for Jesus' death for our sins and resurrection on account of his holiness, we would have plenty of reasons to despair when the darkness falls. But this psalm reminds us that when Jesus was on the cross, he was sure of his victory amidst his suffering, and we can be too. All right. Secondly, by way of application, letter B, Psalm 22 teaches us that Christ is a preacher and we would do well to sit under the regular preaching of his word. Psalm 22, 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. James Johnson asks the question that maybe some of you with quizzical looks on your face are asking. How? What? Christ is a preacher? Let's figure this out. He says, the New Testament helps us answer the question. When Paul was writing to the Gentiles in Ephesus, he said to them, Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off, Ephesians 2.17. Well, Jesus himself never went to Ephesus, of course. Yet Paul says Jesus preached to them. So what does he mean? When Paul preached the gospel, the people in Ephesus heard the spirit of Christ speaking through him. So Paul could say that Christ preached to them. Jesus preaches today through human preachers. That is the means God has ordained to use. And frankly, it's a very humbling consideration as I stand before you today. James Johnson continues, this means that we need to listen carefully and pay close attention whenever God's word is opened. Assuming that the preacher is opening the Bible... This is not just man speaking. Jesus himself is speaking through his word. The risen Christ himself declares God's name to us. Now hear me. I am not saying every word I say is infallible. You know me far better than that. The first moment I stood up here uh, in October of 2019, you knew better than that. What I am saying is be like the Bereans and... That when God's word is proclaimed, Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speaks. How will they call on him in whom they have never heard? Paul asks. How will they hear, uh, believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear unless someone is preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You can't believe unless you hear. You can't hear unless there's a sermon preached. And you can't preach unless you're sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us. Sometimes when preachers preach, you don't hear. But when you do hear, it's the work of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. Jesus is working through preaching. So, do not neglect the ordinary means of grace that God has ordained. You will not hear Christ preach to you out there all alone, one with nature on a Sunday. You will not hear Christ preach to you on the soccer field with your kids on a Sunday. You will not hear Christ preach to you from the bass you caught on the boat on Sunday, although that would be kind of cool. Uh, It's not going to happen. Okay, it just doesn't happen that way. Christ has purposed for his voice to be heard in the assembly, in the congregation, amidst his brothers and sisters. So come to church. Letter C Psalm 22 teaches us that missions exist because worship does not. Three times, the psalmist in the midst of the assembly exhorts the people of God to praise, to glorify, to reverence God. Worship him, he says. Furthermore, he sees a vision of this expanding praise of God to all the nations, which is accomplished by people who tell. They will proclaim. They will open their mouths. They will speak of his righteousness. The mission of God will go forth to people that aren't even born yet. And the point of application today is actually a direct quote from one of John Piper's books, which is called Let the Nations Be Glad. And listen, the point of the book is simply this. One day, missions will cease to exist. But worship never will. And so the goal, the objective, the end of all missions is to make more worshipers of God. We sang it. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Psalm 67, verse 3. And then finally, letter D. Psalm 22 teaches us that the goal of missions that every tribe, tongue, and people would worship around the throne will certainly be accomplished. Certainly be accomplished. Brothers and sisters, no matter how dark the world gets around us or how difficult the missionary task becomes, I want you to see the wills and the shalls of verses 30 and 31 and make them an anchor for your hope and your steadfastness in the mission of the advance of the gospel. The psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and foreshadowing the work of Jesus at Calvary, writes, Posterity will serve him. Listen, conversions to Christ are going to happen. We've already said Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a sure thing. And he continues, It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. No matter how gloomy it seems for the next generation, as we often tend to lament, God will raise up preachers to proclaim this news, to publish the righteousness of God. Do you see that here? They shall proclaim it. Somebody here today, even, some young person here today may be sitting here and God may be stirring up a herald of his gospel. It's gonna happen. We should pray that God would see fit to use us And what a privilege it would be to see a young man become a preacher, a young woman be a a Bible teacher, uh, uh, all of us to be proclaimers of his righteousness. And then he says, they shall proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. The gospel will go forth to all future generations until he returns. And of course, all of this gospel proclamation is designed to reach its ultimate end, which is the praise and worship of Jesus Christ. They will proclaim the righteousness of God, that the work of redemption is complete, that it is finished, that he has done it. And all praise and glory will be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, this psalm begins in lament and ends in doxology. Lord, we praise you. You are the one from whom all blessings flow. You've made him to be a blessing. We read that in Psalm 21. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for this psalm, which was clearly on Jesus' heart. Has he suffered in the anguish and torture of a cruel crucifixion? Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that was shed for us, for our sins, that he was pierced for us, that he was despised and rejected, Your word says it was your wisdom, the unsearchable, unfathomable depth of the wisdom of God that the Jews would miss the Messiah and crucify him. Lord, if it had not been so, we wouldn't be here today proclaiming your righteousness, celebrating your grace the forgiveness that we find in Christ. Father, we praise you for your wisdom. We praise you for the gift of your son. We praise the son for his steadfastness, his humility, his obedience, his identifying with us, his taking on of human flesh. Jesus, thank you. We praise the Spirit who takes the words of a sinner like me and other brother sinner pastors around the world who are today proclaiming from the Word of God. And the Spirit of Christ speaks. Lord, I pray that you would speak even today. Call sinners to repentance, transform the lives of of your saints and holiness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.